mean, there was, you know, I had a five-month trial where I rep had to self-represent. I mean, at least once a day, I was in the washroom throwing up or had a migraine. And I remember the judge felt. I had asked for a German, and he's like, well, you know, you're lucky I'm going to let you wear sunglasses. Hello and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the Project Manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the Director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And uh, just a reminder before we get into today's topic, today you'll hear once again our wonderful uh, research assistant Katie Pfaff uh, doing In Other News. She's got some great topics as always. And I want to just quickly thank her. This is the last time you'll hear Katie this season. And she's done a wonderful job stepping in and helping us out with that. And thank you, Katie. And I know we'll have you back again next season. So please do stay tuned to the end of the episode to hear Katie's thoughts on the news of the day. So today's episode is a combination of a number of interviews that have been conducted over the last few weeks with self-represented litigants who we put a shout out for who are going through the courts with a cognitive disability. So in other words, anybody who has um, some type of brain injury, perhaps trauma or any other kind of disability that affects their ability to process information, um, their stress levels, and their ability to be able to take information in in the courtroom, and all of the other parts of self-representing, which are difficult enough for everybody, but come with extra challenges for people with cognitive disabilities. And we wanted to do this because we were aware that we were hearing increasingly from people with these types of challenges saying that they really hadn't been able to get the accommodations that they needed and required, for example, more time or breaks in proceedings or materials provided in a different form because of the, of the pandemic, because they weren't getting access to the courthouse. And instead, what seemed to be happening was that people were bringing these requests to a judge. So we have two wonderful research assistants who are with us this summer from Ryerson, Sylvia Battaglia and Shannon Meikle. And Shannon and Sylvia put out a shout out for people willing to be anonymously uh, recorded, talking about their experience of trying to request an accommodation in the courts. And they have put together um, a whole selection of interviews, which gives you a very good flavor of what's happening to people. Everybody has chosen to remain anonymous, but we're very grateful to them for sharing their stories with us. We do just want to make a little note that when you hear these clips, you will sometimes hear some tip-tapping kind of noises. Uh, those are keyboard noises because- uh, These were real interviews. <laughs> yeah, these were done for, for a study and Shannon and Sylvia were busy taking notes uh, as they were talking to these folks. And this information is being put together for a presentation that by the time this podcast comes out next week, I will have made to the Ontario Courts Accessibility Committee, chaired by the Associate Chief Justice. And what we're really hoping to do is to use this information to draw attention to some of the problems with the accommodation system at the moment and the sense that you're going to get very quickly from listening to this, that people's needs are really falling through the cracks. First of all, before we play these interviews introduced by Sylvia and Shannon, we're going to go back to a podcast that 
came out right at the very beginning um, of our podcast series with Judy Gayden, who is a self-represented litigant in Alberta who has a cognitive disability. She has a brain injury. And I asked Judy in what I think is one of our best ever podcasts. It's called Catch-22. I asked Judy if she could explain to me what people who don't live with a brain injury the fortunate ones of us who don't have to face this challenge, what we needed to know to understand what this was really like. Like what kind of an impact did this have on her? How did it affect the way in which she tried to represent herself? Just because, you know, somebody appears to be grasping what you're saying, they may be nodding or even saying, okay, it doesn't mean that we understood it the way you meant it, that we understood it at all, that we will remember it, or that we can follow through on those instructions. Um, unlike myself, um, I, who was, I, I was diagnosed with an amnesic type of brain injury where I forgot a lot of things from the past. Most people actually retain old information and old learning. But um, like me, uh, most brain injury survivors will struggle with learning new information. So. All of that, the stuff that came at me and that I was really forced to try to learn, um, uh, isn't, it's not like um, for other people where you read something and you're, you're, you can say, oh, okay, I get it. First of all, that information is extremely complex and it takes time to, to, to put it into your, your filing system and your brain and then to be able to retrieve it when you need to under pressure and actually be able to utilize it or utilize it properly is, is a, a really complex skill. And most brain injury survivors have a very limited cognitive reserve. So they may seem actually fine to you in one, one day or even in one minute and then the next when they've reached their limit, you, you can, it's not unusual to maybe witness behaviors like uh, stuttering, staggering, an inability to actually speak, um, to remember, uh, even the name of a common object, um, to start crying, um, because um, the environment uh, for brain injury survivor changes, like w what's affecting us are things that the, an average brain would screen out, like light and sound and more than one person talking and the smells like the movement in a room that the brain is trying to process it perceives differently and it's trying to process that information so there's all kinds of things going on that um for people with cognitive deficits that other people wouldn't even be aware of The way we set up the interviews was quite simple. Shannon and I just simply reached out to the people that replied to our social media posts or that got in touch with us through our email account. We gave them more details about the project itself and we explained to them uh, what was motivating us to focus on this particular aspect of navigating the court system as a self-represented litigant with a disability. 
the response rate was very high and almost all of the people that got in touch with us initially uh, accepted to continue to commit to the study. So as you'll hear, our questions were pretty basic. They asked the what, the when, the how um, of the process of requesting accommodations. And we were really aiming for open-ended answers where our participants could feel free to share everything and anything that they would have deemed relevant. Before we began asking questions about the accommodations process, we needed to know some of the basics to help us understand the context that cognitively disabled SRLs are operating within. The first question we asked our participants was, when did you request accommodations? Part of our project is interested in the ways that COVID-19 has impacted the accommodations process and whether the pandemic might have affected and potentially inhibited SRL's ability to request accommodations. And to this point, we actually found that 60% of our respondents had requested accommodations since the pandemic began, so after February 2020. And a few had also requested accommodations prior to the beginning of the pandemic, and several people had made requests for accommodations both before and during the pandemic at different levels of court as part of a drawn-out legal process. As we'll hear later on, most SRLs have had, unfortunately, very negative experiences requesting accommodations, and the pandemic hasn't made things easier. The next question we asked our participants was how they requested accommodations. So there is a proper procedure, that is to go to the court accessibility coordinator, of which there is one at every courthouse. The coordinator is supposed to pre-vet accommodation requests and then forward these already agreed upon arrangements to the judge. However, this process ends up being sort of theoretical because for the most part, as you'll hear, SRLs were completely unaware that this process exists. In fact, 9 out of 11 respondents ended up making a request directly to a judge without using this formal accommodation process because they didn't know that option existed or they were unsure how that process works. So actually, in practice, the most common method of accommodation request ends up being verbal requests made directly to judges. We also heard about the filing of motions and affidavits. We heard about the submission of evidence by medical professionals. In several cases, SRLs actually had to sort of prove their disability to the court, which involved the sharing of their medical information. A couple people indicated that the court had helped them submit the proper documents. But as we'll hear later on, that seems to be, unfortunately, an uncommon experience. And of the two SRLs who did use this proper procedure, one found out about it from reading an NSRLP primer, and the other had already been in the court system for four years. So as you're listening to the SRL stories, keep in mind that most of the experiences being shared are very recent, and that the judges often heard from the SRLs about their disability verbally face-to-face or in person over Zoom. So now that we knew when and how our participants moved through the accommodation request process, we started getting into the nitty-gritty of the process itself. So this is when we asked our second question, which was whether they faced any challenges while they were requesting accommodations. And the answer was uh, for all but one of the participants that unfortunately, yes, they did face those challenges. This honestly came as no surprise, but what we were not prepared to hear was the complete lack of support and understanding on the part of the professionals that are supposedly there to alert the self-represented litigants to the tools and the resources that are available to them as people with disabilities. And we were also surprised by the way that some SRLs with cognitive disabilities described how their disabilities were made light of in the court or even held against them. Uh, One SRL is about to describe her experience making sort of a, a smaller accommodation based on 
uh, a symptom of her disability. And just to contextualize that for the audience, uh, in that case, that SRL was requesting to wear sunglasses because she was having debilitating migraines, sort of to the point of physical illness. And those migraines were also interfering with her ability to, you know, interact in court. They were very debilitating. So the request to wear sunglasses was to make that condition more manageable at that time. And you'll hear how the court responded. I did consistently face these challenges. I felt that they were dismissed. I felt that my disability was dismissed, that people were the legal professionals or the system was looking at it as some sort of a player tactic, which it couldn't have been any further from the truth. Um, none of I had my medical teams like write letter like they wrote so many letters. I mean, there was you know I had a five month trial where I rep- had to self represent. I mean, at least once a day I was in the washroom throwing up or had a migraine, and I remember the judge felt I had asked for a adjournment, and he's like, "Well, you know, you're lucky. I'm going to let you wear sunglasses." Um, so because I'm disabled, I felt it necessary that people get, or the judge just start to realize that people have disabilities and they can go to court and let's see if it will be held against me. Sure enough, it was. So I requested specific accommodations for a person for specific reasons. Um, and uh, the judge says, oh, I never got that. I'm like, well, here, here's a copy. And she goes, oh, that's okay. I'm like, well, no, it's already been approved. You don't have to like reapprove it to say you did it. Um, so it was really weird. So they do kind of condemn you for doing that. And they belittle you in some aspect instead of trying to say, okay, how exactly do you want to do this? But the judges are not aware and they seem to be very judgmental on people with disabilities. One thing that emerged from the interviews uh, was that for some of the SRLs with a cognitive disability, their disability was um, becoming confused with a lack of capacity. A lack of capacity would have a very different legal consequence, uh, where instead of just being accommodated, the um, self-represented litigant wouldn't actually be allowed to self-represent. So obviously, they're Two very um, different things with two very different consequences. Should anything go wrong, oh, this person is no longer has a capacity. Mm, no, because she's disabled, she has the capacity, no capacity to be able to represent herself or understand the consequences of what she's doing or, or, or lack thereof. Yeah, so I asked the judge um, if I could have a supporter or a McKenzie friend uh, with me during the trial. And um, he was very negative about it. He did not like the idea of it all. Um, when I asked for it, I had immediately said, like, I would like a friend. They would not be there to provide legal advice. I would not be talking to them or conferring with them. It's not a lawyer. It would be somebody who's providing emotional support to me um, because I have post-traumatic stress disorder and um, various, you know, like I, I'm struggling with being, you know, set down for a six-day trial. And um, he was still very negative about it. Um, he asked me several times, is this a lawyer? Are you just going to have a lawyer beside you? And I had to say no several times. And um, uh, eventually he just said, well, you can ask the trial judge on Tuesday morning. So he really was very dismissive of the, the idea. He was not supportive. He was very strongly trying to discourage me from even asking. 
and I uh, was not directed to any kind of like this is how you make a formal request or you need to fill out this form. There were no, um, there was nothing to encourage me down that path. It was more they wanted he wanted to put a stop to it right then and there. In contrast with all of the interviews that you heard so far that depict a really negative picture of just overall helplessness, you will hear now a piece of an interview where a self-represented litigant finally found somebody that was able to help them and direct them to all of the available resources and tools and that really took the time to listen to, to them and guide them through the process. So do listen and pay attention to how big of a difference this played in her experience in achieving that justice, and especially on a personal level, how good it made her feel to just be guided and be supported um, in the way that it took off a lot of the uh, stress that she was going through as a self-represented litigant. Friday, just before the long weekend, we spoke in early afternoon at one thirty. Mm-hmm. And and this is when he told me, he said, no, we do this all the time. It's routine to ask for more time. Don't worry about it. So when he said, don't worry about it, so as far as the court system, um, you know, they were quick to react within a week, week and a half. And the, I spoke to his boss first, and she was talking much as well. Absolutely mm-hmm. talking much. If anything, as I've described it, it's a very, very positive experience from a, Absolutely. From a customer service point of view, 10 out of 10. What this gentleman from the court, I'll call him Derek, just that's his name, uh, Derek was being very polite by saying these lawyers don't know what they're talking about. He didn't say that. Mm-hmm. But quite clearly, I've been given erroneous information. Being able to have the assistance of a McKenzie friend and I submitted the letter from my GP as well as my um, psychologist in support of that. So it was to have the Mackenzie friend and that um, questioning be limited to half days and that it not be held on consecutive days. Because I live in Semaphore and court is in Oshawa. Mm-hmm. So I'm a good you know, an hour and a half, hour and 45 minute drive, and that's taxing for me. Sure, yeah. Um, so the, uh, Justice Nicholson did grant those requests, but he couched it saying that due to COVID stress, he wouldn't acknowledge that uh, I had other issues. So they basically didn't even acknowledge um the reasons why you were making that motion and they just um, dropped it all up to just being COVID stress, right? That's right. I had um, an M, uh, a thrombosis in mm-hmm. 2016, which affected my executive function, which memory and judgment, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. And my lawyer was aware of it, and so was the other lawyer. But um, I still had no knowledge that I could get accommodations. We were curious about what resources SRLs relied on when figuring out how to request accommodations. And this question yielded some really interesting answers. The NSRLP and our primers came up fairly often. About half of the interview participants had used an NSRLP resource. 
Beyond that, the answers were extremely varied. Different SRLs had found different forums or websites, and a few had even relied on case law and legal documents like the Human Rights Code. Here's what a few SRLs had to say about the resources they used. Uh, well, I use the Self-Represented Litigants Project a lot. I go through all the primaries and read that. Uh, there is, as well, an online uh, forum that I use called Ottawa Divorce Forum. So it's peer support for other self-represented litigants. Um, that, you know, it's kind of hit and miss in terms of the quality of material there. Um, and basically, the rest of it is just I'm, I'm doing all my own research. Yeah, well, you know where I got... Where I got the Mackenzie friend was from your site. I went to your site religiously um, just to read, like, because I thought I was losing my mind, like, just like, does anyone else feel this way or, or what can I do, you know? Most people, I'm a, I'm a go-getter, I used to be a senior manager, mm-hmm. most people wouldn't have pressed on to talking to the court people and asking for right. accommodation. Right. But it, what helped me a lot is... It was timely. You guys sent a primer, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I started reading through this. And then I think in the original email, it said that you could request accommodations right from the court. You guys shone the light for where I could ring the doorbell. Because mm-hmm. before, I wouldn't have known. I would have only known a source, HRLSC. So I took it for granted that the door was closed, but because it was so timely, I mean, your email was the week before <laughs> asking for people. So I read the primer that you kindly sent, and mm-hmm. um, and then it gave me ideas. I thought I'm going to press on with, with the court. So it's very worrisome that most applicants at Human Rights Tribunal would not seek that type of accommodation support because you need a bit of... I don't want to say courage, but you need determination to start bringing all those doorbells. Absolutely, yeah. I think you bring a very fair point. If somebody else in your shoes didn't have that drive, that determination that you had, maybe they would have just stopped and they wouldn't even know that they could have done so much more with their legal issue. Absolutely. I have the wherewithal. I used to be a lecturer at the university. I used to be a senior Mm -hmm. manager. I have a lot of knowledge uh, as an MSc as well, so I'm well equipped to deal with this. The average person that um, falls under one of the grounds um, on top of being victimized in their situation and being told no uh, and and being denied justice, um, it's an uphill battle and many, many will not pursue. I wouldn't have pressed on unless I saw your primer because Mm -hmm. I did not know one of your challenges is even knowing where to go and what's available to you is that right exactly okay and did you use any resources so far to try and guide yourself in understanding uh where to get what well i used to go to the courthouse all the time and they were pretty helpful in um where they the family court, the family law office. Mm-hmm. But I can't go there anymore. It's been a couple of years. You basically left out me air because they have no support. And I can't afford sure. anything else. So because my processing is, is um, impaired, mm-hmm. it's very difficult for me on the websites to sort of decipher. 
Okay. Everything that's relevant. I mean, I basically have brain damage, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, for you, please tell me if I'm getting it right. Sure. The best way to deliver information to you is in person or by voice, and you have um, trouble finding that information when you go online just because you're hit with so much information all at once. Exactly. Our last question for the SRLs was, did the courthouse make any efforts to ensure that you knew how to submit an accommodations request? Here's what the SRLs had to say. No. Uh, there is not anything really provided at the courthouse, especially since the pandemic, of course, all the slick are closed. And as far as I can tell, they've not transitioned to anything kind of virtual or any kind of help whatsoever. As a matter of fact, when I would, when my doctors would submit accommodation requests, the majority of the judges said they never heard of stuff that, like someone asking for an accommodation. No, I didn't uh, get, no. No, I didn't get uh, any real explanation. Um, it was it was awful. No, zero, 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 zero. If I had not known this stuff, like I said, people online had no no clue that you could even request for for, for assistance, even like at recording. Yeah, they they given me no help. In fact, um, after I received the uh, judgment or the endorsement that said that I was supposed to pay to get a transcript, I emailed back the lady and I said, is this really my only option? And they didn't respond. They ignored me. It would have been helpful if I had known what accommodations I could have prior to all this. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they basically just said, just submit this, just write this thing out and we'll, we'll let you know, as opposed to saying, here's what you can get, here's how you can request this and that, and go from there. I, exactly, I had no idea from, from, from post-stroke mm -hmm. what accommodations I could have. 90% of our participants answered this way, in the negative. So it's clear that cognitively disabled SRLs generally don't feel like the court is helping them as they try to request accommodations. This is something the NSRLP is hoping to address. On June 14th, Julie made a presentation to the Ontario Courts Accessibility Committee, where the experiences of the people whose stories you heard, as well as several others, were shared. The NSRLP is also preparing a report on the data we collected, which will be made available on our website. So I just want to thank you guys, first of all, Shannon and Sylvia, for, for doing these really, really wonderful interviews with all of these people. I found all of them really, really impactful. And I, I took copious notes and have lots to say about, about the experiences of all of these folks. But the first thing I just kind of wanted to talk about was something that you said, Sylvia, in one of your introductory clips, talking about how you guys were really just unprepared for how unsupportive the courts were for all of these folks. So I wondered if you guys could, could just talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. So in my experience, I just finished my first year of law and you have this idea of the legal system as 
this mecca that will solve anybody's problem and is just there to help people, right? Mm -hmm. When I think back to my personal statement, I wrote, I want to do a lot because I want to help people. Mm -hmm. And I can't even imagine somebody that would get into this profession has so much power, so much knowledge to make great changes in somebody's life. And then when they are in that position and they're confronted with people that just ask, hey, I have this disability, can you help me like get through this process? And in the meantime, they have so much to be worrying about because they're self-represented litigants. They probably have so much on their mind uh, going through like on a personal level and then having to go through the process. And you like you would expect the people that are there to help them to mm-hmm. just do that. And instead, what we came across was um, almost like a dismissal of, the depth of their problems. And then as Shannon will get into later, um, sometimes it could even get it, even get to the point of ridicule where um, the people just felt like they were completely helpless um, and just um, as if their disability and their needs weren't um, valid at all. Yeah, Shannon, I, how about you? Yeah. Yeah, no, um, on that point, Sylvia, that's a great comment because one SRL I spoke to actually mentioned that when she did get accommodations when things did manage to kind of run a little more smoothly those accommodations often still wouldn't address her actual disability so she would get some kind of accommodation but it's still not this understanding of the fact that the cognitive disability that she had fundamentally changes the way she's able to interact with the court and I also agree I you know as a law student you kind of expect judges to be at like the peak (laughs) of the field right paragons of justice because that's like the terminal point in a lawyer or someone in the legal field's career, right? That's like the most aspirational figure. So then we hear from these SRLs who are vulnerable people who should, should be protected by people who care about justice. And maybe the judges are performing well at their jobs in other contexts, but in this context, things are, things are slipping through the cracks and it's so frustrating because Mm -hmm. it kind of changes the way you view those aspirational figures. Yeah. Yeah, I can understand that for sure. I mean, you guys have kind of both touched on this already, but um, one of the things that I was doing as I was listening to all these conversations, it's I started really being noticing the language that the self reps were using around how they felt going through these processes. And I just made this little list. And so words like dismissed, condemned, belittled, got no help, felt like I was losing my mind treated like I had no capacity and and really all of them use language like this and it, it just it's so it's so heartbreaking that these people are going through these experiences and being made to feel this way during my interviews when I was hearing these stories it was it was really hard for me to you know maintain that professionalism where I would just have to like keep yeah. going through the interview when inside I was just feeling a deep sympathy and I just wanted to express my my sorrow for it that one person and I can't even imagine the people that are behind the desk and that could do that and could offer them even just sending them a link to a website mm-hmm. that could help them and they you see you see that they don't do it and instead they take it to the extreme and they just continue on uh, worsening the problem and this this to me just speaks to how society approaches disabilities in general. Mm-hmm. There are people whose, um, whose problems are not acknowledged and they're not accommodated in the way that they should be. 
And it's sad to see that it's so pervasive in the legal system as well, where you would think you would hope that this that would be the one place where they would be immune from all yeah. of the stigma. Yeah. Yeah. And Dana, just on your point about language, I was really struck by how sort of violent the imagery of the language they use mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. Like we talk sometimes about how the legal system can be traumatizing for people. And I feel that you could see that and feel that in the way that these SRLs spoke about the experience because they were using such visceral language, mm -hmm. right? And you could feel the way that they had been hurt. And it kind of reminds me of this point that one SRL made where she described how uh, even just in visual cues, SRLs are kind of differentiated and mm -hmm. treated like outsiders by the court. So she mentioned how when she was in court, everyone was wearing robes. The lawyers were wearing robes. The justice was wearing robes. She wasn't wearing robes. So even just like at a visual level, she was kind of set apart as an outsider. Yeah. Constantly reminded that that you don't belong, that you're not part of the system. Absolutely. That it's kind of a hostile environment that you don't belong in. Yeah. Yeah. And just to kind of, to sum up all of this, I would say that that final question that you guys Mention and then there's all those litany of responses from from folks when you asked, um, did the courthouse make sure that you knew how to make these requests and make sure that you were supported and just the the um, emphatic nature of everyone's responses, the like repeated no's and the like no zero 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 and it's just it's so telling that there seems to be. Uh, I, I don't know, there seems to be even this lack of awareness within the court system and on the part of judges even apparently about the accommodations request process and about things like what Mackenzie friends are and all of these things and this, this complete lack of understanding of these processes that have been set up by the justice system is really, really troubling. Yeah, it was almost um, so sad that it was almost comic. Um, <laughs> and my impression was that either you as a person have that determination that drives to just spend hours upon hours uh, to do that research, to make those phone calls, wait for somebody to pick up, uh, go on blogs and forums, come across our own website. If you don't have the resources, the time to mm. do all of that, then you're really on your own because from the, this one specific question, we see that the court won't be doing that job for you. So it's either that you do that or you just give up on getting your own justice. Yeah. Yeah. Near the end of the, um, like in the last sort of few interviews I was doing, when I asked that question, I would have my fingers right over no, like right <laughs> poised to type it. Because when I asked that question, I knew mm. exactly what they were going to say and I knew how emphatic it would be. Mm. Um, and Sylvia, I think that's a great point about resources because. Some SRLs mentioned that like being self-represented is often a hugely intersectional issue, right? And one of those intersections is poverty. And one person was saying, I was living in my car at this time. I didn't have internet. I couldn't even print things, right? So how could she, you know, find resources? How can she do this deep dive that you have to do if the court's not, you know, she could get to the court, but she can't really do anything else. Yeah. And at the court, they're giving her nothing. So, and the fact that so much of the information can be found online where you have so much, you're hit with so much in so little time, it fails to acknowledge that disabilities, they come out like they can be of many type. Mm -hmm. And some people may just have a hard time reading off of a screen, or they may just have a hard time 
diluting information when they're thrown at them so fast. So the whole system, you can see that it just miss, it's based on this fallacy that um, a person with a disability can find a way to help themselves yeah. to get that accommodation. Well, thank you both so much uh, for doing these interviews and I can just tell how, how passionate you are about this issue. So thank you. Welcome back to In Other News. My name is Katie Paff, and I will be your news correspondent on this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. For any new listeners, this segment is all about summarizing news stories in the world of access to justice. I'm happy to recap the following news stories from the past few weeks. Our news stories today will focus on access to justice for Indigenous people in Canada. After the tragedy uncovered at the Kamloops Residential School, the legal profession is beginning to vocalize and cry out for meaningful justice and representation of Indigenous people. In his address to Ontario judges, Chief Justice Richard Wagner of the Supreme Court of Canada states that there must be more education for the bench to understand Indigenous history and the histories of other cultures and communities in Canada. From this education, personal biases must be uncovered, as any judge is a product of their own lived experiences and privileges. Cultural competence is foundational to access to justice, and through COVID-19 and the Black Lives Matter and Me Too movements have only made competency all the more pressing in the legal profession. While 45% of all federally appointed judges are women, there's still room to grow with regards to representation of judges who are Indigenous, racialized, have a disability, or are part of the LGBTQ community. Chief Justice Wagner endorses and welcomes new perspectives to the bench to build public confidence and understanding in the Canadian justice system. Our second story focuses on a settlement reached to include hundreds of Indigenous people who were left out of the residential school's class action compensation protocols. The lawsuit was brought by Indigenous students known as day scholars who attended residential schools by day but return to their homes at night. Survivors of these residential schools will receive compensation of $10,000 according to the proposed settlement. In addition to this, Ottawa will invest $50 million into a day scholars revitalization fund. Two survivors of the school, Charlotte Gilbert and Deanna Jules, have been fighting 14 years to receive compensation and feel that a wrong has been made right because despite going home at the end of the school day, they were still subjected to the horrors and inhumane treatment of the residential schools. This is just one step as Canada continues along its path to reconciliation. That is it for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Join us next episode for another thought-provoking conversation.